And I am Aware Now. Aware Now, the official platform for causes. Tune in and turn it up as we raise awareness one story at a time for the causes that tie us all together. Opposite of belonging, there is othering. As opposed to acceptance and inclusion, othering translates to intolerance and exclusion. This can result in marginalization and discrimination within us versus them mentality. Being othered can cause a number of mental health issues. For help understanding and navigating mental health and issues like othering, there are a number of resources. Today, we look to the world's leading provider of online therapy, BetterHelp.com. We have the pleasure of speaking with Hasu Jo, a licensed marriage and family therapist and head of clinical operations at BetterHelp. Experienced in stress, anxiety, LGBTQIA, family conflicts, trauma, and abuse, grief, parenting issues, anger management, self-esteem, your specialties include relationship issues, career difficulties, and coping with life changes. That's a lot, Hesu. <laughs> That's a lot. And that said, there are a lot of people who are dealing with a lot of issues. So today, let's focus on the issue of othering. I wondered if we could start out with you sharing the actual definition of this term that's used so often, and then following with a personal recollection of your own. Um, yeah, I mean, such a big question, such a great question, and, and something I think that is relatable to a lot of people to other is to treat or view someone or group of people as intrinsically different and alien to oneself. And that's a literal definition if you Google it. And based on that, I can say I have been othered my entire life. And really people that think that they haven't initially, if they start really thinking about it, they can probably start picking up on memories or times that they themselves were alienated, ostracized, separated from some group. Um, cause you know, at some carnal primitive level, I think we are tribal creatures. We gravitate towards those that are like us. There's familiarity for one thing. And this deep rooted, long-standing idea that our people are the ones we stick with because it's safe. It's comfortable. Um, so growing up, I was one of a few Koreans through my high school years. Um, I did grow up in California. Um, but you know, I was a minority. And on top of that, I was bullied for a variety of things because kids like to bully people that are different. I'm very tall. I've always been tall for my class. So I got bullied for being tall. What? I got bullied for having hair on my arms. You know, I got bullied for bringing exotic foods in my lunchbox. When, when I think back, it's like my mom who was working full time took the time to pack me home cooked mm. foods. I can't even do that for myself now. So thank you to my mom. <laughs> Um, and a big one, you know, for having a name that nobody recognized or cared to ask how to pronounce this often made me feel like I was different, that I wasn't belonging and to be made to feel like you don't belong, that you don't deserve, or you don't fit in that's to be othered. And to be frank, I still experienced this as an adult in Silicon Valley of all places, because yeah. people do this without realizing or without intending pretty regularly still. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Um, you know, so on the subject, in an interview that I conducted last year, it was with Jordan Van Hemer, and he is a Korean American saxophonist and composer, also an official ambassador of Awareness Ties. Uh, we spoke about othering, and as it relates to Asian Americans, he referenced the what I've never I hadn't heard up until that point perpetual foreigner stereotype. So for those uh, who are not familiar, it's being seen as a foreigner even when you're not. How does this affect a person's mental health? Um, yeah, the, the perpetual foreigner stereotype, I hear of it a lot from my Asian American friends who are third or fourth generation American families. You know, they have been in this country for even longer than some of the, to be frank, white people that are asking, well, where are you really from? And so that's where a lot of this comes from. And so not only does my outward appearance scream that I'm not from here when I'm in most places in the U.S., people take a look at my name, Hesu Joe, and they they come with me, meeting me with a lot of assumptions about my life story, where I was born, where I grew up, the level of English I've probably attained. You know, some people have probably heard these things. Wow, your English is really good. But where are you really from? Can you read these chopsticks instructions for me? Like I've gotten these kinds of questions before, which to the person asking, I imagine they think it's like a harmless way to try to connect with someone. Um, but to be constantly made to feel like this country isn't where I'm from, like this body and this space isn't where I'm supposed to be, that creates dysphoria, that creates dissonance. These things can make you cringe being in your own skin, uncertain of who you're even looking at when you look in the mirror. And these things will certainly challenge your sense of self, identity, esteem, value, and self-worth. So it certainly does have a big impact to someone's mental health when they can't even feel aligned, um, you know, just navigating through their world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as it is with all things in life, there are two sides to everything. When it comes to othering, there's the one who's affected by it, and then there's the one who's causing it. So often the act, as you mentioned, the act is caused by a subconscious bias. So this is the hard question then, right? Like how can we prevent unintentional othering when people are unaware? How do we do this? Um. That's a tough one. I don't have a simple and straightforward answer. You know, the literature and information is all out there. You know, the stuff that helps counter these biases. Um, the thing with subconscious bias is people that carry them are often unaware. So they may be unaware that they should be educating themselves on all this stuff that is out there for them. So I've found myself in debate with other people, with myself around whose responsibility it is to educate, to bring this information information to the forefront so that people can have an understanding of it. And I deeply believe that the responsibility does lie with the dominant people, the dominant group. And in a lot of contexts here in the U.S., we're talking about white folks, the folks that are usually causing the othering, the folks who are usually harboring a lot of subconscious and implicit biases. I also recognize that marginalized communities would not have made as much progress without the active voices and efforts of those of us who are willing to educate, willing to exercise patience, willing to take on this burden really, and willing to help others see something differently. So at the same time, you know, there's a well-known study that shows that BIPOC employees attempt to implement DEI, diversity, inclusion, 
um, initiatives in the workplace, they receive lower marks on performance evaluations, often because um, you know, being a direct outcome of their efforts here, while white employees are often rewarded and seen as valuable assets to the company when they do the same thing. So I think this really shows us that there is a lot of power in allyship and there is a lot of need for improved awareness. So if you're part of the main group, regardless of like what you're categorizing as a main and a marginalized people, you have a lot of influence on other people that are like you. You are the people that are othering others and it starts with you. So prevention of othering, I think starts with the main group, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it can be scary and painful and uncomfortable for people to do that because it means they need to confront that they themselves may not be as open-minded as they thought. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, and that's great advice, right? That we all, let's let's all play a role in this, but certainly those who, who are causing it, like let's all, let's all step up together um, to find where we need to be. Um, you know, and, and so whether it's othering or any other issue, when it comes to mental health, representation for minority groups is very small both among those providing services and those receiving services. So how do we as a society change that? How do we change that disparity and, and work to close that gap? Another big question um, with what I believe are many moving pieces to an answer. And there isn't one answer. There isn't even one solution. I think it, we as people, you kind of touched on this as a collective, we must all contribute to whatever the answer is for there to be a real solution. And you know, providing and receiving mental health services is still stigmatized in so many parts of the community, of the Asian American community, of many marginalized and minority communities. You know, a lot of um, ideas are pervasive in these groups that sitting down and talking to someone is a luxury. I don't have time to do that. I can't afford to not be working during that time. So there is this idea that mental health isn't something to be prioritized because instead for a lot of these groups, they value grit. They value the idea that you can just work really hard and then life will work out for you. Um, but how many of those people are burnt out? That's another thing, right? So, you know, in, in this field though, it's, it's very visible. So guess how many Asian Americans were in my first class during grad school? And this was less than 10 years ago. There was one, it was me. And um, that was a very jarring experience having grown up in an Asian enclave myself, but it really was the first of many experiences that I had to really highlight that mental health therapy, all this stuff is very white dominated, which makes sense because, you know, the field started in a Western world. Culturally, it's very different from a lot of um, collectivistic um, schools of thought, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I do see that things are continuing to change now. I do see that there are more Asians, Asian Americans in this space going to school um, to become therapists of every kind and going to therapy to receive treatment. It's becoming more talked about. And what will continue to change this disparity and close some gaps, I think, is continued open communication, education, awareness about all of it. People continuing to make noise and bringing it up in every space, school, work, mm -hmm. ads, social media, radio, TV, movies, art. Mm -hmm. um, the more people talk about it and the more it all becomes normal to more people, I think fewer people will get left behind, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Um, so again, it's, it touches on something we talked about, like we're all part of this movement mm -hmm. and 
I have so much gratitude to the people that are being active in their voices using various platforms to get more of this idea out that it is normal to seek help. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, and so I want to switch gears for a moment just to speak to the fact that there's an app for everything, including mental health. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy platform, making professional therapy accessible, affordable, and convenient with an app. So question for you, as a therapist, Hasu, what do you love most about this platform? And then the second part, what have the users shared with you that they like best? Um, great question. I won't be talking about like features or the technology piece of it, if that's what somebody is hoping that I answer. But really, it's about like a favorite thing I've identified about the company and what BetterHelp is doing. So BetterHelp is undeniably part of the many conversations that are helping to make therapy normal, to make therapy accessible, to make therapy something that more people are just talking about on a regular basis. Like, can you even listen to podcasts these days without hearing about something having to do with BetterHelp? Can you scroll through your social media without seeing some kind of ad for this platform? And, you know, some people might think it's getting oversaturated or feel that it's overkill. I've seen this kind of feedback too, like, oh, BetterHelp is everywhere. Maybe it's a little bit too much. I don't know. I see it as compensating for all the decades, even the centuries that people weren't talking about, weren't thinking about, weren't prioritizing the importance of prevention, treatment, maintenance, relapse care in the world of mental health and trauma. So really one of the things that I love most, because it's, it's very hard to choose just one, is that before I started working at this company, nobody in my personal life communities was talking about therapy or mental health, unless the conversation was accompanied by blaming the parents or blaming and shaming this person's upbringing or their family. It was all about stigma, hush, hush vibes. Mm -hmm. um, but fast forward five short years, five short years, and my entire family of yellow faces are rocking BetterHelp t-shirts and telling everybody they know what I do. My Asian immigrant parents are bragging to their families and friends now that I'm a therapist. I'm shook by that. I'm humbled by that. I'm graced, honored, and energized by that. And users of the service have similar sentiments about what BetterHelp is part of, right? A movement to make therapy accessible and normal. Going to the doctor for checkups is normal. Eating well, exercising, and sleeping well is normal. Identifying ailments to treat them is normal, just like therapy is normal. So that is one of the things that I really value about what BetterHelp is doing is that it's making therapy normal. It's mm -hmm. okay to, it's not just okay, it's good. It's encouraged. It's something that anybody and everybody could consider um, to bring some kind of improvement into their lives. Mm -hmm. Oh, and I love that. I love that. Um, and I love how you made that comparison too. Like people don't say it's weird to go get, go to the doctor, get a checkup, you know, it's normal. Like let's work, make this normal as well. So, um, you know, so uh, switching gears yet again and recognition of AAPI Heritage Month, where we celebrate over 30 diverse countries of origin, ethnic groups, languages, and cultures. I would like to thank you, Hasu for the work you do to support others in their mental health journeys, while also at the very same time, inspiring others with personal representation in this industry. Because the fact of the matter is, if people don't see themselves in a space, 
they often feel the space is not for them and that there isn't space for them. So my last question for you today is for anyone who feels that way, what words would you like to share with them? Um, that, that resonates so much. Um, I think my first exposure to therapy and what it all is um, was some, somewhere between high school and college. And I had only just seen like a bunch of white people. And so at that time, I can recall so vividly like, oh, well, I guess Asian people don't get therapy or it's just like not something that Asian people talk about. I mean, my parents had never brought it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and speaking of my parents, I'll forever be grateful to them. They are immigrants and they are the people that look like me that modeled carving your own path and making and taking space if any hasn't been left for you. You know, they both entered industries almost 40 years ago where they they were both, you know, often coined as like the first Asian so-and-so. And for my mom, even the first Asian or the first woman to whatever in her field of work. Um, and this happened multiple times. So this was like great role modeling for me that you can be the first of something and then you blaze this trail for others like you to continue doing that, improve upon what you've brought to the game. And I've, I've been blessed by the universe to have them as role models, giving me permission to blaze my own path in a field where my passions exist. And yes, we butt heads and we clash all the time, even about my career choice. Initially, it wasn't something that they were comfortable with because they were not familiar with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but look, how, you know, I just mentioned that now they are the ones that are very expressive and proud of what I'm doing, which is such a huge thing. I think for a lot of children of immigrants, we seek that approval and that validation all the time. We probably walk around with a lot of guilt of like, oh God, you had this like huge struggle of a story to get over here with, you didn't even have two pennies to rub together or whatever your parents' version of that story was. Um, And, you know, they also taught me to butt heads with people when it really matters. And that's, that's also very important. The idea that I can live for myself, that I can make decisions for myself. Um, you know, they really embody following opportunities for a better life for themselves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, ironically, they are the ones that showed me that I can make decisions for myself. And the reason I say ironically, I think a lot of kids of immigrants can relate to that, understand that they do have this um, desire and almost expectation for you to follow a certain path because they just want you to have a successful life free of burden. And I think once you can achieve that, I think that sh- shifts perspectives even. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was once a time that some spaces were never for women, never for black people, never for the LGBTQ community, never for so many marginalized groups. If all of these people from the past succumb to the notion that spaces weren't for them, where would we be now? You know, you can always be the person that begins to break ground and really big changes. It always starts with one fired up person at a time. Um, so if you're feeling like a space isn't for you, you make it for you. <laughs> and it does require a lot of hard work. It does require a lot of ability to cope with adversity. You're going to be challenged and people are going to push you to your limits in so many different ways. But, you know, I think if you have identified something that's important and meaningful to you, um, there's been so many people before us to show us that you can make space. Yeah. Yeah. What what an incredible piece of advice. If the space isn't there, just make it make space because people talk about make time for this, but make space for this for yourself. Take space. Yeah. Take, take it. Darn it. Just take it. <laughs> um. I really just cannot thank you enough for taking this time 
for sharing your story, for sharing your insights, and uh, for helping all of us. Thank you for helping all of us, Hasu, just become a little bit more aware now. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for this talk. Thank you. Tune into our podcast, subscribe to our magazine, find us and join us online. Visit IamAwareNow.com. We will no longer wait for permission to change the world. Together, we are aware now.